This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to hand over the mic to Monica McLemore, and we're going to do a little transition of the mic switch here. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. So while they're being de-mic, for people who don't know me, my name is Monica, she, her, hers. Um, while they're being de-miced, I would like the audience to join me in a round of applause and celebrating Erin Grant, who is being honored tonight by the New Voices for Reproductive Justice, and she's here with us. Uh, they're being honored tonight um, and being recognized for being a powerful leader within the black LGBTQIA community who advocates for reproductive justice, and she's receiving, they are receiving the Voices of Change Award tonight but they are here with us. So can we give her a round of applause? Please? They didn't know I was going to do that. Last weekend, um, the DCCC was here, and we had a Democratic convention, and our governor, Gavin Newsom, got up and said something really inspiring Um, And for those of you who didn't hear it, I'd actually like to to give you a little taste of what he said. The headlines were almost correct in in the news where he invited people to come to California to have their abortions, um, which I thought was really interesting and fascinating. And as a clinical nurse, I got a little nervous because I was like, oh, we need some staff. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, I'm sweating, right? I was like... But one of the interesting things that, that, that he wrote along with the governors from Oregon and from Washington State, they codified it in a letter talking about their commitment to reproductive health and reproductive health services provision. So I think it's, I, I just want to read you what they wrote because for me, it was very, very inspirational. Um, and I think it really sets the tone uh, before I introduce my colleagues and collaborators who's the next panel. In the absence of federal leadership on these issues, states must step up and place, put in place their own protections, both in statute and in their state constitutions, and through the expansion of essential family planning services and education to defend every American's right to reproductive freedom. I actually was really, really moved um, when I read that, and I was really, really grateful that, that there was some press around it because he really set the standard for how we should be thinking about our essential work and really being able to provide the care that people need. So that said, I'm going to ask some very special people who I've known for a very long time to come up and join me um, on the stage. And I will first introduce Dr. Eleanor Dry, uh, and she is the medical director of Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. <laughs> For the people who don't know, I I have clinically been fortunate enough to work with Eleanor for the last 18 years, and I'm very grateful that she can be here tonight to share with us. I'd also like to call up Dr. Jody Steinauer. I see you coming. I see. She's got her mic on now. She is the director of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health and also works at the Women's Options Center. And I've been very fortunate to work very closely with her and the team from Innovating Education and Reproductive Health. And so very glad that you have your microphone on. And then you have yours on. Okay. 
And uh, let me call the stage uh, Ushma Utpadiyai. And I have to tell you, you know, Ushma was one of the first people to answer um, that I had opportunity. She and Lori Friedman really embraced me in a way that I will forever appreciate um, because she was doing some work with my mentor, Dr. Diana Taylor, on the Health Workforce Pilot Project number 171 um, to be able to provide uh, the evidence that was necessary for advanced practice clinicians um, to be able to uh, do aspiration abortions. So that said, um, the panelists will start and um, we'll provide you with some brief comments and then I'm going to ask them some questions. Eleanor. Um, so I was asked uh, to speak about what the role of academic institutions in Haven States um, would be. So a place like UCSF in maintaining and expanding abortion access. Um, so what I would say is that we're lucky in academic institutions. We're sort of known for quality and high-risk abortion care. Um, so as such, we are in the privileged position of providing abortions beyond the first trimester for women who are most at, um, at greatest medical risk, who may have the most medical comorbidities, the most medical problems, um, and also um, just going later than other places may be able to offer. Um, so what I would say is um, really quite unusual in our city is that um, at San Francisco General, where we have a women's option center that you heard about, we're part of UCSF, but we're also part of the Department of Public Health. And the, what's I find incredibly moving is that the mission of our hospital as part of our public health department, is to be a safety net for uninsured and underinsured residents of San Francisco. And yet, the Department of Public Health has understood for decades now that they actually are a safety net for abortion care. And, and that has given us um, a lot of support in providing for patients coming from beyond our city's borders, even from beyond our state who need our services. And beyond that, the Department of Public Health and our city attorney had the understanding that, for example, when there was the federal abortion ban, it was their idea to join that lawsuit on behalf of the patients served within our hospital, saying that we ought to be able to provide these services. And then this week, they've understood that the overly expansive health and human services interpretation of conscience, conscientious objection, which I find so incredibly offensive, um, how they're interpreting it, that our city attorney's office is like, sign us up. We're going to sue the Trump administration on this basis because you know, what they should be talking about is what is the role of conscientious provision. And um, so I, it's really amazing to be in a place like this. So, um, so yes, we're the safety net as UCSF and San Francisco General um, for our patients, but beyond 24 weeks, we're allowed to also provide a safety net for those patients. And what that's meant within San Francisco General is that many of those patients cannot get these services at, at an affordable price and we are able to be a safety net for those patients. 
What I don't know, you know, as abortion becomes more restricted is as I imagine more patients coming to a haven state, um, that will require increased support as a safety net, again, beyond the original mission of our hospital to help those patients. Um, as an abortion provider in an academic setting and in San Francisco, I'm from Missouri. So, you know, you can talk about Henry Hyde being from Illinois. We, in my home state, gave everybody Clarence Thomas. Um, <laughs> so we all have things that we feel not so good about, perhaps. Um, but I feel very lucky to be here. I feel like at, in an academic setting, it's amazing to be able to provide um, the evidence to fight the restrictions um, and to be a proud provider of outstanding abortion services. And as I said, I can't imagine not providing those services. I um, know on a day-to-day -day basis how critical those services are for the patients we see. Um, and I cannot imagine being in an academic setting where I would be in a restrictive state. I can't really wrap my mind around it because I think, well, you know, it's easy for me in San Francisco to say, what would I do? Um, but I don't really know what I would do, but I, I can't imagine being told I would stop doing what I'm doing. Um, I feel very lucky to participate in the care that I'm able to offer here. Um, every day I care for patients I respect so profoundly. I admire them whose stories and lives touch me and motivate me, and I can't imagine not caring for them. Thank you, Eleanor. And I'm going to try. Do you have water? I want to make sure your voice is protected. Let me let, <laughs> let me ask you another question because I think this is something that I, I I think we all struggle with, and that is we've heard about the onslaught of abortion restrictions and how it's being compared to a crisis by a natural disaster. But like, how do we how do we model? How do we affect? How do we prepare for what like seriously is a man-made political? disaster? How, how, how are we going to get ready? Well, so, you know, I've told people that I went to what is really an unimaginable, there are a series of um, regional meetings about how to gear up for what is literally in, in you know, it is a man-made disaster. And, um, and it's a political disaster. So these regional meetings are large groups of haven states and hostile states, providers and advocates and everyone getting together to say, okay, we have to put together kind of a disaster plan. And that's, that's really what we're talking about doing. So how do you maintain the brick and mortar that, you know, you need the brick and mortar places not to go away because you hope that in those hostile states that you don't lose those places because it's very hard to get them back. Um, and those people are needed. And, and for um, patients seeking abortion care beyond 10 weeks or beyond 20 weeks, you know, if you move entirely to um, self-administered abortion, how do you maintain the services for people at more um, advanced gestations? So I think there are practical issues around sharing resources. There are very um, complicated issues, you know, as Stephanie was talking about. What do you do about um, abortions that may start in one state and end in another state? 
Um, I, again, the, the, um, the importance of funds um, can't be overestimated um, and how that will trans- translate is really important. But, you know, I mean, I, I think that going to that regional meeting and thinking about teenagers in particular, like what are we expecting teenagers to do to continue to get safe abortion care. It's kind of mind-boggling and really giving me chest pain. Mm, Yeah, thank you for the insight. Um, Do you have thoughts or ideas about how we can support academic institutions that are really, you know, priding themselves on on offering, like, outstanding patient-centered evidence-based care, including abortion care like UCSF, but are in some of those hostile states? What can, how can we... Uh, further advance conscientious provision and support our colleagues that that may be in a more hostile state? I don't know, really know what to say about the hostile states. I, d- I don't know. I mean, I can, I'd like to, I actually would like the people who are here from Access to stand up, Yeah. if you wouldn't mind, because I really would like people to seek them out. I again want to say, you know, as we look to this, um, this really, as I said, kind of unimaginable future, we already are heavily reliant on access, um, women's health justice, for their hotline, for their practical support volunteers who have such a rich understanding of our patients and their needs. Um, the more people, as was said, the more people who are trained to give practical support now by access, as soon as possible by access, those are the people who will then be able to support whatever people need to come from hostile states. So I, I think that that model of the abortion funds who really provide, con- I mean, they're like concierge, they're like wraparound care. And the example I can think of that I really was, there was a, a teenager coming really from a far way away to our clinic. And her parents didn't want her to get these services. And Access came up with a plan for her where the same woman came and picked her up for a babysitting job two days in a row and brought her all the way to the clinic so she could babysit all day, brought her home at the end of her babysitting job, brought her back the next day. I mean, that kind of just attention to what would allow her to get safe care um, with a family that was not going to help her um, is is what places like access do and and you know on a more basic level again when we when I went to this western regional meeting saying oh patients are going to travel we have patients who have trouble getting from Oakland to San Francisco and that is a real barrier for people. So to think that we're going to be able to really help everyone who needs this care get, you know, like for people who don't have documents, like people are like, oh, get on a plane. Well, not if you've got no documents, not if you've got no way to get on the plane. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, you've never been on a plane. Well, how are you going to do that? So those are just intense barriers. Um, So 
I think when I think about what we'll need in a haven state, I imagine not only will we need more nurses, more counselors, more support, but we probably would need volunteers to be the embedded access people helping get people here with the level of attention, kindness, and care and respect that patients really would need. Thank you so much. Thank you. One of the things that I'm doing, I'm flying to Atlanta tomorrow to go accept a leadership award at the Association for Women's Health Obstetrics and Neonatal Nurses. And one of the things we're going to talk about is nurse training uh, as RNs and telephone support also working with our emergency department colleagues as well as our labor and delivery and OB triage colleagues to really do some awareness raising around the need for abortion care and hopefully really, really be able to help get us some more staff. I kind of joked about that, but I was very serious. You know, um, I, I just want to say, you know, the, the patients are so motivating. You know, we um, – have taken care of, because of Dr. Tiller's murder, um, we've taken care of an increasing number of patients beyond 24 weeks. And initially that was very uncomfortable on our labor labor and delivery, um, among our colleagues in labor and delivery, but the patients speak to you. And I think that it has been transformative for the, you know, when you see the context, when you see what it means, then you just, as I said, you can't imagine not providing the care. Is, is there anything you'd like to say that you haven't said yet, or should I move Maybe to I Jody? Move on. I'll move to Jody. <laughs> Thank you, Eleanor. So, Jody, can you, can you walk us through how should we rethink and or restructure training to prepare the clinical workforce to care for patients in a, in a post-row United States? What should we be thinking? Yeah, well, um, I, I wish I got to talk about the patients, but I'm going to try and talk as passionately about learners so everyone get excited. Hey, they get, they yes. get, they get radicalized, too. Yeah, they're really different. <laughs> so I just wanted to start by acknowledging I see all these people in the room who trained me to provide abortions, so I want to acknowledge oh, wow. you. And just to acknowledge everyone here who trains people and who are learning to provide abortion care. So I just wanted to honor you all. Um, and, you know, Monica, Eleanor, and I are all clinical educators. So our job is to train doctors and nurses to have competence and skills to provide compassionate, patient-centered care. And we are so likely to be able to do that. And of course, part of being able to provide care for patients is to be able to provide abortion care. Abortion is common. Abortion is more common than removal surgeries to remove the appendix, the gallbladder, more common than hysterectomy. It's about as common as cardiac catheterization, which is a diagnostic test to evaluate whether the heart is getting enough blood flow. It is very common. Obviously, I'm you know, telling you who don't need to hear this, but this is why it is so critical that it is integrated in all schools of nursing and medicine, no matter what type of specialty the learner is in. So that's, that's why I'm talking to you today. And so I want to just start for a second by talking about the current state of training, because we have not achieved an ideal state of training. And then this, if we really well, we're already facing extreme restrictions, as we've already talked about, and if we actually entered a state, a, a time with where abortion's banned, training is just going to get more complicated and critical. So, 
And I just want to honor that I'm really focusing on medicine and nursing, those two professions. I want to just honor that it's, these are just two members of the abortion care team. We have counselors, we have medical assistants, we have volunteers. It takes a lot more to provide care for patients. So uh, what is the current state? Well, OBGYN residency programs are mandated to provide abortion training in all aspects of abortion care, including doing abortions. Family medicine residency programs are mandated to provide training in pre- and post-abortion care and provide the option for family medicine physicians who want to learn to do abortions to be able to learn to do abortions. Abortion is expected to be in curricula of other specialties of medicine, like emergency medicine, so that physicians in the emergency room can care for the rare patient. Remember, abortion is extremely safe, but the rare patient who needs to be seen in the emergency room, for example, uh, after an abortion. All medical students and nursing students are expected to learn about abortion so that they are prepared to counsel patients, to refer patients, and to treat them with compassion. And for, depending on the specialty, maybe to have more advanced training. So in reality, we haven't really met these goals even today. So we still have one-third of OBGYN residency programs without routine integrated training. We still have a majority of family medicine residency programs that do not have integrated training, and we still have many, many medical students and nursing students, including advanced practice clinicians who do not learn about abortion. So that's where we are in the pre-row America, the in-row America. So here we are thinking about, we've already had many challenges in restrictive states, but if really we faced a situation where it was banned in many states, we would be in a really challenging situation in education. So I had a few thoughts to, to discuss. One is we really need to think about expanding the workforce and really think about training in different ways and not necessarily limiting ourselves. I would say, you know, I'm, I'm, my focus is in abortion training and education, and the people in my community tend to think fairly narrowly. We sometimes really focus on family medicine and OB-GYN and advanced practice clinicians. We really need to think into different disciplines in medicine, or different uh, subspecialties in medicine, and really think about the full spectrum of nursing care, including pre-licensure nursing, and really the whole workforce. That's one thing we really have to do. We have to think differently about curricular content, so we need to think about what would it take to prepare all nurses and physicians to provide care for patients in both legal abortion settings and illegal abortion settings. And, you know, a lot of this was brought up by our previous panel as well, but we need to really make sure everyone is trained, all clinicians, to create a welcoming and non-judgmental space for patients to really do a better job of educating patients about bodies and menstrual cycles and what it might mean to be pregnant. And then we talked a lot about harm reduction. What are the options if you do find yourself pregnant? And for patients who might choose to self-manage their abortion, how do we counsel them about what is safe, how to access medication, all the things that the previous panel talked about. So this is kind of a different way of thinking in medicine, to really prioritize this harm reduction model as well. Also, we do already do kind of a bad job <laughs> with abortion patients 
just getting them to clinics, so counseling them about options, knowing where our local clinic is, knowing how to refer them, knowing about the abortion funds and all of the volunteers who are ready to help them, support them. So we really need to integrate all of that into training. The last thing I wanted to say is that we also really need to worry. I am very worried about the learners in these states without legal abortion. How are they going to learn the skills they need to provide care for patients? I mean, this is a disaster. Already we are suboptimal in our training. So we need to really put pressure, I think, on all schools of medicine and nursing to really prioritize this and to be ready for this if this were to happen. Already we have uh, you know, places with extreme restrictions where they don't actually get to interact with patients needing abortion or being in abortion care settings. But we need to really put pressure on the, on the schools. We need to put pressure on the national organizations who set these rules. So how are we going to handle it if it is a requirement for OBGYN programs to have training if there are no legal abortions in that state? How can we make those residency programs train to competence, right? Same with medical schools, same with nursing schools, et cetera. So we really need to think about it at the level of the national organizations. Our learners need to demand training and think about creative ways to overcome the shortage of patients they will have. So we've been thinking a lot about distance learning and online training techniques, the use of simulation, all of these kinds of other uh, modes of learning that we could integrate in places without access to patients. Thank you, Jody. It's very, very helpful. Building on what you've just um, outlined for us, how could a teaching institution like UCSF help train clinicians to provide abortions in new geographic distribution? Well, that is a tricky question. Um, so many, ac- especially med- you know, medical schools, are so often centered in these densely populated areas. And so, you know, thinking about how to inspire graduates to go out and practice, to to be in clinics on the borders, to be in places where they haven't been before Mm -hmm. is a little bit challenging. I mean, I think one thing we could do is really prioritizing teams of faculty and learners Mm -hmm. to provide care outside of sort of the safe space of the academic institution or community you know, uh, engage in the larger abortion provider community, get to know different providers, really do much, you know, build a community beyond the academic medicine walls. Um, you know, every time I have, I've mentored many people and taught people who, as soon as they go work in these clinics that are sort of outside of our protected San Francisco General Clinic, which is so beautiful, they are just so inspired and motivated to continue doing that work. So I think that's one way, is just simply bringing them there and modeling. And then um, do you have specific recommendations or specific things you want to highlight about us as UCSF and, and really thinking through how we can be expanding the work that we're doing because we do, uh, we've had some success, we've had some, you know, barriers and challenges, but, but how can we really be thinking differently about high-quality reproductive health care to people both in California and in other states? Well, I, I think that... Um I'll take a moment to brag about UCSF because I feel like we've done some really good things in this world. I'll just start with Monica, who... (laughs) who, We created Monica. Yeah. (laughs) She trained at UCSF. No. She... um, She's... I mean, Monica, you've done incredible work leading nursing training initiatives and really thinking 
broadly about nursing training initiatives. We already talked about uh, the program that came out of ANSWER, the data that supported the change to make it legal for advanced practice clinicians to do abortions in California. And I know of at least one of those who's in the audience who does abortions. She's an APC. Yeah, I see you. Um, so we've, we did a lot of that work. We've also led the fellowship and family planning, the Ryan training program. I mean, we have really been focused on how to make sure that every single medical student, nursing student, and family medicine and OB-GYN resident is trained to do abortions. So I think we just keep doing that work. Um, I also, you know, the Innovating Education and Reproductive Health Program that was mentioned earlier, we um, created the first ever online abortion course that was, has been watched by more than 10,000 people globally. And we really need to push, you know, to further develop content and make sure that everyone, you know, really think of this online curriculum as a great tool to sort of educate people beyond physical boundaries. May I mention something that did come up in the, um, in the regional meeting, which is, you know, as it, if Haven states are going to take care of more patients, it is important if we're going to keep training people for part of the considerations of those um, patients traveling is to places where they are going to train providers. So, for example, in our clinic... If we had more patients in our clinic, we would be able to accept um, trainees from other places. But, you know, the way medicine works is that you need a certain sort of critical number of patients being seen for providers to efficiently learn to be safe, respectful, the people who you would want to participate in your abortion care. So, um, So I think that the hard thing is if you need to be efficient... You, you need to see people quickly. Trainees are not really that. So that has to... <laughs> so there is a built-in tension there yeah. because they're slow and you want them to be slow because they need to learn at a pace which is fair. Yeah, so um, so that, is a, that is a balance. But at the same time, you, you know, having... When I was a fellow and I was training people in in, um, South Africa in different clinics, you need a certain amount of volume because otherwise it's just not efficient efficient Mm -hmm. learning. And it is amazing and quite moving to see how quickly people can get skills for what is straightforward care. But if you only do a couple procedures in a day, that is not happening, Mm -hmm. you know. And then I just wanted, the one last thing I wanted to add is I was also thinking about how important emergency medicine is and the nurses, the staff, the physicians in emergency rooms are really critical. And I really think we need to be thinking about how to bring these messages to that community to make sure that patients are not treated as criminals, are treated compassionately, and they really know know this content, which they currently don't know that well. And I just want to say, you know, like in our little (laughs) clinic, we've trained internal medicine people. One of them's going down to Texas now. Surgeons. You know, we've trained surgeons. Surgeons who have gone elsewhere. So these are skills that are within, you know, and and the motivated people, I think, you know, really will will take this to places where it's needed. Agreed. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So we've heard about clinical care provision and we've heard about teaching education, um, but I think we also need to hear about research. And so, Ushma, um, let me ask you this question. 
What do you see as some of the methodological challenges to researching the consequences of abortion restrictions? Sure. Um, So I am a public health social scientist based at ANSWER, Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. I'm one among about 15 researchers, and many of them are here, so I'll try to represent. Um, A lot of the work we all do is um, researching the impacts of restrictions on women's lives. And And restrictions have different impacts. Sometimes they reduce the ability of providers to keep their doors open and they lead to closures like admitting privileges laws and transfer agreement laws. Um, And sometimes they increase the burdens on people's ability to get an abortion, like the two-visit requirements and parental consent laws for people under 18. And then there are also laws that outright aim to shame people choosing an abortion. Uh, Missouri has a law that requires individuals to have a pre-abortion pelvic exam when we know it is not a medical necessity for a doctor to examine your vulva and internal reproductive organs before an abortion. So um, in our work studying the effects of these restrictions, one of the greatest challenges that we've had to face is how do you identify individuals who would have had an abortion if those restrictions were not in place? Um, so I think one, one of the answers is to look for people anywhere but abortion clinics. Yep. Recruit out in, in communities. Um, so that there's been some um, really innovative work. Jenny O'Donnell, who is now at the Society of Family Planning, recruited interview participants at um, shopping center parking lots. She is a brave person. And um, <laughs> I, I think Walmarts. Um, and my answer colleague, um, who's not here, who couldn't be here tonight, Sarah Roberts, recruited patients at prenatal care centers. Uh, and that has worked out successfully. In my own work, I have a study, a Google AdWords study. We recruited people searching for an abortion provider um, and who were considering an abortion at the time. We followed them up four weeks later and asked them about the barriers that they faced in trying to obtain one. Um, We're working on the analysis now, but um, at four weeks, 50% had obtained their abortion. 20% had decided that they wanted to carry to term. But another third of the participants were still trying to obtain an abortion four weeks later. Like, that is... A, a big problem. So what we need is really innovative study designs. Um, we need more acceptance of thinking differently about how to reach people who are seeking an abortion to really understand their experiences. Thank you for that. I'm really lucky that I'll be presenting some of the innovative study design uh, facility work with Sarah Roberts at AWAN. Um, we've come up with abortion facility standards from her important study, and so we'll be presenting those data while we're in Atlanta as well, so it's super exciting. Um, let's pivot a little bit that as abortion access declines throughout the United States, what, what are some proactive things you're thinking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can we at UCSF maybe be more proactive in our research question? One thing I have to say is I have never been more appreciative of the academic environment that we have at UCSF. Mm. Um, There's never been a time where I've felt that I have this academic freedom. 
um, and support. Um, you know, the email we received today, um, or was it yesterday, where um, the UCSF, um, it, you know, disagrees with HHS's decision to stop fetal, um, to tissue stop research. studying, yeah, yeah tissue research. Um, and Dr. Murtha um, has supported me in, in you know, difficult um, uh, research plans, and so I, I feel very supportive. This week we have, um, we're doing at ANSWER an abortion incubator, um, abortion researcher incubator, and they're all right here. Um, and just hearing about the struggles that they face at their institutions, it really makes me appreciate being at UCSF. Um, but our team, um, we currently have um, several innovative trials that we are working on. Um, our own Dan Grossman has a portfolio of really cutting-edge um, research projects investigating alternative models of provision of medication abortion, and his powerhouse team is over here. Um, and, you know, they're, they're evaluating access to medication abortion from pharmacies, both brick and mortar and online pharmacies. So um, uh, eventually ho the hope is that a um, primary care provider in a small town would be able to just write a prescription and for their patients down the, down the road. And I'm in the process of uh, designing a study to test the feasibility, safety, and effectiveness of a telemedicine model of abortion. I'm working with uh, Dr. Karen Mextroth in our department. And that's the California Home Abortion by Telehealth Study. Um, and this, this study would be the first to omit any clinic visits or clinic tests um, that are usually required. And um, to assess whether prospective patients are within the 10-week gestational limit for medication abortion, we're going to do something very revolutionary. We're going to be actually believe people um, <laughs> when, <laughs> when they say that they're certain of when their last menstrual period is and calculate that a date based on that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, is, it is unbelievable how um, just crazy it, it, an idea is um, like that in the current institutions of clinical research that we work under. Mm. Um, I want to thank you for like shouting out the pharmacists because I, I also want to include them in, in our group of people as we think about education and training and care provision. So thank you for that. You mentioned telemedicine. And would you sort of walk us through briefly, you know, what are the major barriers to why we haven't seen an expansion in telemedicine? Yeah, that's a great question um, and currently my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> first, we need high-quality clinical trials demonstrating that telemedicine is safe and effective. Um, so this would be, you know, a, a, a telemedicine model, a clinician can join and, and um, communicate with a patient in the comfort of uh, their own home um, over, over video chat and then mail the pills. Um, and then another barrier mm -hmm. are 19 states currently have uh, laws against telemedicine. They're telemedicine bans um, in various... Specific to abortion? 
Yes, sorry, thank you. Yes, they, they, they promote, they love, it's often um, rural states love telemedicine because mm -hmm. it, it is so effective in bringing primary care to um, patients. However, they carve out um, abortion and say that it can't be used mm -hmm. for telemedicine. Um, and we've, we've heard one comment or a couple comments around self-managed abortion. So, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what your thoughts are in terms of um, mifepristone and misoprostol use um, in our current environment? Sure. So um, we know that it's happening um, in the Google AdWords study I mentioned. 5% of those who, the 50% who obtained an abortion reported that they had their abortion by buying pills online. So we do know that it is happening. Um, and it will, but it will be very hard to study, um, mm -hmm. say in a, in a post-row scenario, mm -hmm. how will we know who's having abortions? What are the numbers? So we won't see rows of people in hospital beds like in the 60s. Um, so we will need to be creative. I, we need to look at Google searches for self-managed abortion and look at that, mm -hmm. look at changes over time. Um, we could try to monitor sales of, of pills, purchasing pills um, over the internet, maybe um, try to access some of these, these companies if possible. Um, and then we might be able to monitor change over time as abortion-related emergency department's visits um, increase. We know that um, one one hundredth of a of um, one one hundredth of all emergency department visits among women of reproductive age are abortion. Sorry, one one hundredth of all emergency departments visits right now are abortion related, and we could look at change over time. Um, not not that not that self managed abortion is dangerous, but often people will. Go to see care, reassurance, ask about those symptoms at an emergency department because that's often the primary source of care for many people. And then um, what we could also do is maybe a series of cross-sectional um, population-based surveys um, mm -hmm. asking about um, people's experiences of self-managed abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's always statistical modeling um, and projections. So... Um, Kirsten Thompson um, at the Bixby Center is working with Diana Greenfoster and myself, and we're working on analyses modeling the distances that people travel to obtain an abortion and what, modeling what will happen if um, Roe were to fall or bans were to go into effect um, over time and at different, different scenarios. So there's lots to be studied as... Um, as access declines. Awesome. Before we open it up to audience questions or Slido questions, is there anything else that, that's burning that you think you might want to say that you haven't said yet? <laughs> Eleanor? Eleanor. <laughs> Could I have the people from Access stand up again? <laughs> um, I just want to say again, I mean, this is not, I mean... Oh, there we go. Please, please do meet these people and volunteer and 
make these connections. This is what we're going to need. Um, they make things happen. There is, you know, they make things happen. So please meet them, work with them, learn from them, learn from the people they take care of, and help them. Um, there is another group I want to mention, um, which is All Options Pregnancy Resource Center. Um, they are also Indiana and Oakland based, and they do train people from around the country to help um, anyone who has questions about pregnancy care, pregnancy decision-making, post-pregnancy parenting. And they also are another place where they serve as a very important resource, and you could be trained by them. They're training people this fall. So, um, so you know, all options and access and yes. Thank you. Thank you. Jason, do we have questions? We do. Um, so uh, first question, of the clinical workforce and training topics discussed, what would you say California specifically needs to prioritize? On training topics? Yeah, uh, clinical workforce and training topics. In California. Everything I described. <laughs> California specifically. I think everything I described. I don't know what people really... There might be something else. Do you have any thoughts about that? I do. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going from moderator to participant yeah. now. Um, because I think that's important. Um, one of the other people that I'll be talking with when I get to Awan is Dr. Lisa Wolf, who's a nurse with a PhD, and she is currently the research director for the Emergency Nurses Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we really want to get at is something that Eleanor said. What is respectful care? What is understanding the you know, fundamental components that, that any clinician would need to know in terms of reaffirming, like you said, Ushma, you know, normal trajectory of either a medication abortion or post-abortion care from aspiration or from induction. So really not having people because of their lack of educational exposure um, inappropriately uh, manage or take care of um, an individual who had had an abortion. So really increasing their knowledge and their educational exposure to make sure that emergency department staff and um, clinicians um, have, a, have a, an evidence-based uh, understanding of how to, how to take care of people who might present in those different environments. Can I have one other group stand up? <laughs> yeah. The um, nurses, counselors, and doctors in the room who work at the Women's Option Center, either at San Francisco General or at Mount Zion. Um, I I do have one thought about just one thing I didn't mention about training, which is that, again, focusing on doctors and nurses, we are bound by codes of professionalism and ethics, and we are bound to promote patient autonomy, we are bound to put the patient before ourselves, and we are bound to promote social justice, and I just want to remind us all of that as we go forward for all of these disciplines and specialties, that this is really the code and this is the framework we need to sort of use for all of our training efforts. Great. So we're running up against time. Um, so we'll just have, uh, we have one last question, if that seems okay. We're right at seven. Unless we want to run. Okay. Uh, so we've talked about patients having access to info about abortions. 
but how can we ensure they discover the correct information, mm -hmm. i.e. misleading uh, Facebook or Google ads? Mm. Yeah. Um, go to their go to their <laughs> websites. So yeah, yeah. Websites. yeah. There are yeah. Hopefully, people will be. You know, Google just um, has this new um, policy where they are requiring abortion providers to testify. I, I don't know exactly how they're going to verify the accuracy of, people, of the clinic responses, but they must respond. Do you provide abortions? Yes, no, when they advertise. And so hopefully um, there could be, you know, we could, um, you know, in time, there could be a way that um, ev evidence-based sites um, could, would be verifiable in some way. I mean, what I've said, which is kind of the opposite of, of this question, which is that, you know, now, unfortunately, whereas there used to be and still are, not outside of our hospital, but out of many, outside of many places that provide abortion, the people with the awful signs and the misinformation and the abuse, and now with the internet, we've invited all of those people onto our phones and in our homes, and so patients come to us they, they have effectively been, you know, just like the level of abuse they've gotten and the judgment they put on themselves is in part because of the shit that that have, has has gone to their homes and their phones, and it's just really, really disturbing. Well, I think I think one of the things that we actually need is. Um, public service announcements, and I know I'm biased in this because, you know, I think billboards are a really good thing. We have no But I also think that um, public scholarship and really leveraging the currency that we have, I mean, you know, even just lifting our, social, our own self-imposed social media ban, I think is really important so that people know that there are opportunities and there are people who are having conversations. I also think lifting up the work of abortion storytellers and other providers who are really more public in their work um, to really make sure that, that as we are trying to get fact-based and evidence-based information to individuals, that we are, are using reputable sources. So even within your own circles, if people are sharing misinformation, it's very helpful when we can correct them. And the can Bixby we just Center say, site is a very evidence-based And can I just there. say, in front of my mother and my department chair, I'm so sorry for my use of bad language. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would like to thank Aaron Grant because they reminded me that we should have comprehensive sexual education. Yeah, of course. So I would like to please call um, the... Uh, Chair of the OBGYN department, Dr. Amy Murtha, up to the stage. Yeah. She will provide us some closing comments, please. I'll um, make my remarks brief, but I first wanted to just thank all of you for being here um, and for participating in such a wonderful way. Um, thanks to Bixby, um, to Answer, to all those that um, put, put this together, pulled this off. Thanks to our, our panel speakers. Um, it really has been just an inspirational evening. I'm honored to be here tonight and to have the opportunity to participate in such an important conversation in a critical time in our country. As the chair of the Department of OBGYN and Reproductive Sciences at UCSF, I've had an incredible opportunity to witness firsthand what advocacy and commitment can accomplish. 
I've come to expect the impossible at UCSF. A commitment to reproductive rights and reproductive justice is a, is a critical piece of what we do at UCSF and in the Department of OBGYN, and I'm proud to serve as the chair of this important department. We have so much to contribute, and it's really an honor to be here. I came from North Carolina, a somewhat more restrictive state. Um, and it's been an interesting experience for me to practice in this state, actually, and to be able to share my experiences from North Carolina, which were quite different. So today's times are really tumultuous, and our ability to control and influence access to full-service reproductive care continues to be threatened. Uh, what I heard tonight reflected in your voices is the urgent need for action. Um, and I would, I would say that that need is actually something that's been long-standing as was suggested by some of our panel speakers. So what can we do? Partnering with our local, state, national organizations, partnering with the, the people that um, Eleanor just kept making them stand up and down and up and down, the poor, poor. <laughs> we can make them stand again if you want, Eleanor. Um, but looking for ways to elevate our voices is critical. I think there were a couple of, of points that I wanted to just sort of elevate again uh, one more time, and one actually um, is one that the department is really focused on quite a bit right now, and it's health equity, um, structural racism, um, and how um, social determinants of disease impact, impact health outcomes, but really also access to care. And addressing that um, and taking that on, uh, while it's a huge um, challenge is something that's absolutely necessary if we are to be effective. Um, and I, I wanted to just mention that again. Of course, um, being a department chair in an academic institution, focus on research um, is another way that I think we can really contribute to the conversation and certainly with education and our advocacy uh, work as well. And our newly formed advocacy strategic planning group led by Dr. Dan Grossman Um, you know, I, uh, this, this is a long-standing battle, and as I um, considered what it was that I wanted to share with you tonight, I started thinking about my kids and my teenagers. I have a 15 and a 16-year-old, and I thought, gosh, this is, this is really a generational issue, right? Uh, but, but it really isn't, actually. And it, um, I kept trying to make it a generational issue and create a story that fit that model, but it really isn't. It's the same struggle that we've been talking about for a really long time, and it's an intense moment in time, um, but it is the same story. So I decided I was gonna ask my kids. I have to give the closing remarks at this really important event. What am I gonna say? Like, these people that are speaking are national experts. How can I contribute to the conversation? So they taught me about Roe v. Wade and talked, told me about how it was really based on privacy, the original decision, and how it's become more um, equity, and, and um, they carried on and, and on and on. <laughs> and um, I, I, for some reason, my uh, 15-year-old decided it was time to get Dad involved in the conversation, who was in another room, who yelled, Dad! are you pro-life or pro-choice? Which I don't really like those terms, but he said, what? 
<laughs> and she said, are you pro-life or pro-choice? And so he paused for a moment and he said, and this is a very wise man. He's the um, husband of an OBGYN chair. with two teenage daughters. And he said, women should get what they want. I'm I'm reading because I want to make sure I get it right. When they want, any time they want. (laughs) And he he is smart. That was the right thing to say to his wife and two teenage daughters. Um, But I think it actually just, again, it it was a a fun... um, a fun time. My teenage daughters really enjoyed that answer. But it, it does actually, I think, reflect that culture that we really should be able to do with our bodies what it is that we want to do um, and have that choice. And so I, re- again, want to thank you all for being here tonight. It's really been a wonderful evening. And um, now, actually, it's time for you to get up and enjoy some refreshments. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.